This morning's reading is from John chapter 14, the first 14 verses. And it's subtitled, Jesus Comforts His Disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. What is the first thing you think of when somebody starts a conversation with, don't worry? (laughs) You worry. Most of us stop really listening at that point and stop understanding what's being said. Our minds go into overdrive, perhaps our hearts start racing, and we start to panic. We think... What am I going to do? How are we going to solve the problem? How will it affect me? It's probably exactly the opposite of what it was intended. And chapter 14 starts this way, partway through a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. You may remember from last week that they were in the upper room sharing the Passover. However, this time, the Passover was not just a meal. Jesus had demonstrated that how he would now be the lamb. This whole evening must have stretched the disciples beyond anything that had happened before. Jesus had shown them in the bread and the wine that he would die. But more shocking revelations were to follow very quickly. Instead of becoming heads of state, they would be washing other people's feet. One of them was going to betray him. And Jesus was going away. In chapter 13, verse 33, he said, 
where I'm going, you cannot come. And finally, Peter too will disown him. In the midst of all this, Jesus tells them not to worry. What he says is, do not let your hearts be troubled. Really? This seems a particularly good time to me to be troubled. <laughs> troubled, however, has a bit of a deeper meaning here than perhaps how we would use the word today. Troubled was the word used for the waves in a storm when they were all stirred up, and we can particularly imagine that at the moment. Everything is stirred up and tossed about. In fact, it's reminiscent of what Jesus said when he calmed the storm in Luke 22. That evening, unbeknownst to the disciples, the storm was brewing outside. The forces of darkness were making a move, and Judas, under Satan's influence, was betraying Jesus to the Jewish leaders. Whilst inside, Jesus was calmly preparing his disciples for the next few days but they simply couldn't understand him. Their worry framed this whole conversation. And I get it. For three years, they'd followed Jesus, giving up pretty well everything, everything in their lives. They'd witnessed fantastic miracles, the healing of the 5,000, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, even raising the dead. They'd listened to scriptures, being explained as never before and they touched the son of God in everyday life John would later write in 1 John that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked at and our hand has touched he is the word of life they had expected Jesus to take up his rightful place as king in the here and now but all their expectations, their hopes, were collapsing, disintegrating around them. Jesus is leaving and they simply can't get their heads around it. I would imagine, as Jesus explains that he's going to prepare a place, they may well have been thinking, what house? Where is it? But the words Jesus uses to conjure up the image of this amazing place was more opulent than even Herod's palace. I should perhaps pause to explain the culture at the time was that a practice that each family would have their own house and complex of buildings or tents, depending on their wealth. And as a son got married, he would return home to build on an additional apartment on the, onto the existing house. And then he would go and fetch his wife, wife and his bride and bring her to the new home. So the original father's house would start getting larger and larger and larger. And Jesus here is giving them a picture of what the heavenly father's house is like, which is very large as there are many dwellings of rooms or apartments. So that is what would be envisaged here. I found it interesting to note that the disciples were not so much interested in the house and the rooms. There was no squabble about or who's going to get the best room, or the one with the view of the ocean, or whatever. The only concern was that Jesus was leaving them behind, and they didn't know where he was going. Before we move on to the rest of the passage, it would be worth taking a moment to ponder this point. Back in Mark 10, the disciples had been fighting over who would sit next to Jesus. Power and prominence were on the agenda. 
But now all of this has fallen by the wayside and they're, all they're concerned about is not being with Jesus. The prospect of Jesus abandoning them, even for a short time, is more than troubling. It's unbearable. But they knew better than to say, but you can't leave. Jesus is offering them comfort and reassurance as he himself prepares for his own death. But he's also starting to get them to think for themselves and put all the pieces together that he's told them time and time again. So we have Thomas. Aren't we thankful for Thomas as he pipes up with the very obvious and literal thought that all the disciples must have had at that moment? We don't know where you're going, and we certainly don't know the way. In other words, what are you talking about? Spell it out for us clearly. And Jesus' reply is one that we all know so well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now we've looked at a few of the I am statements over the last few weeks. I am the good shepherd, the door, the gate, the light of the world. And each of them explain attributes of Jesus. But like many of Jesus' words, there's a simple and a deeper meaning involved. So let's dive into I am the way. And that's where I want to spend most of my focus this morning. For many years and perhaps even more so today, it has been popular in our pluralistic society to claim that there are many ways to God. Likened to many equal or valid paths or ways up a mountain to God, sort of all roads lead to God. So let's look at some of these views. Common beliefs include all religions, whether Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever ism you like. The belief is that following any of these sincerely will bring you to God. But there are some fundamental problems with that. All religions contradict each other, especially contradicting Christianity. If Jesus Christ claims to be the only way to God, and Muhammad says there is another way, then one of them is wrong. They can't both be right. Furthermore, each religion describes a different God. The characteristics are different, and each has a different view of Jesus. If you pursue a different God, you will reach a different destination. The God you will reach is not our God. We could lump all these gods together under the demonic realm. They're all pointing away from God to themselves, and ultimately our God, Yahweh, will judge them. We see this spelt out in the Bible, perhaps most notably in Psalm 82, verses 1 and 2, where God presides over the great assembly and he renders judgment amongst the gods. And we see this also played out in Revelation. If this seems narrow-minded and offensive, well, I guess it is, but it's true. So how about this second view? How about a mix-and-match spirituality? Pick the bits that you like from any of the previous ones mixed in with a bit of calling upon the universe. Perhaps it can intervene. This might well make you feel good or even spiritual, but the created universe is not able to save anybody. If you want to pick bits and pieces, how will you know that the bits that you have picked are the right bits to follow? So how about universalism, popular even among some Christian writers and within church? 
The idea is everyone goes to heaven. The main argument for universalism is that a good and loving God would not condemn people to an eternal torment of hell. This doesn't take into account the whole picture and the whole nature of God, that he's not only loving, but he's also just and holy and righteousness. Some universalists believe that after a certain cleansing period, God will free the inhabitants from hell and reconcile them with himself. Others say that after death, people will have another opportunity to choose God. Now, whilst these are very comforting ideas, that certainly negates the entire reason for Jesus dying for our sins in the first place. Why bother if everybody's going to hell? If, sorry, if everybody's going to heaven. <laughs> That's a whole other religion. Universalism is heretical and has no weight in the Bible. But perhaps the most dangerous alternative is the one which has permeate parts of church. Man can reach God by his natural reason, which can lead him to leave, live a good life. And if he lives a good life, he'll be acceptable to God. This idea is called natural theology or later life. But let's unpack it a little bit because it's quite appealing, quite honestly. I look out on creation and see all the wonderful things and realize there must be a creator. I want to know this creator. So far, so good. This creator has made me, so I must be very nice. And if I live a good life and try my best, this creator will have to accept me into heaven when I die. Uh-huh. What is a good life? How many sins are acceptable to still be considered good? It doesn't matter where you set the bar, you are not God, and you will not be sitting on the throne on Judgment Day. So let's do a quick demonstration. Everybody could stand up, just for a minute. You all look very nice, and I know a lot of you, and those of I don't know, you, you all look nice. So, if you have ever told a single lie in your life, sit down. Take it, I'm sitting. <laughs> Every single person here is guilty. Every single person has sinned. Our friends and family may consider that we are nice and live good lives, but that's not enough. God knows different. Our sins, our one sin, is sufficient to keep us from God. But the thing is, we don't actually want to, deep down, of our own, we don't really want to live good lives. We like the idea, it, it sounds good on paper. But what we really want is what suits us, what makes us happy in the here and now. In and of ourselves, we are totally incapable of choosing God. We are incapable of living a sinless life. We are incapable of even wanting to. You can find all this in Romans 1, but I will summarize it. Ever since the world was created, everyone can clearly see God's invisible qualities, and there's no excuse for not knowing God. Instead, they wouldn't worship him, but came up with their own ideas and idols to worship. So God abandoned them to their sins. He trade, they traded a truth for a lie. Now, since people thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. 
If you read the beginning of Romans, you'll see all this laid out very clearly. We are exactly the same today. Now, all these ways that I've outlined have one thing in common. They're all man-made, and they all rely on us to do all the work to get to God. They're all as foolish as the builders of the Tower of Babel trying to become equal with God. Every single one of these ways that I have mentioned, every single belief, will certainly put us on a path. However, the path that is put, or way that is putting us on, is not taking us to the one true God, not the God of the Bible. Rather, they are all, every single one of them, they are all leading us straight to the gates of hell. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, verse 13, when he said, Enter through the narrow way, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. So what does I am the way mean? To start with, when Jesus spoke these words, he actually used two phrases that we don't see in the English. He says, ego I me, which both mean I am. So what he was actually saying is I am, I am the way. And this harks back to Exodus 5.13 when God said, I am who I am. Now implicit in these statements, but spelled out in the next verse, is Jesus is the only way. And he says, nobody comes to the Father except by me. This is a very clear and non-negotiable. As Christians, this is our one core belief. It may be offensive, to those who don't believe, but there is no getting away from it. This is the one, one of those points that we have to, to believe is true. This is why we are told to go preach the gospel to everybody, because nobody can get to heaven without believing in Christ. No one. Jesus alone reveals God. Jesus alone is God's chosen sacrifice. Jesus alone is God's saviour. Faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. And it's perhaps all this that, that led the early Christians to be called the people of the way because it was such an exclusive, and it still is, an exclusive statement. In common with Jesus' statements that he is the gate or the door, I am the way could mean, for example, the only way into my house is through the front door. If you climb over the fence or break in through a window, you'll be forcibly removed. And also, the door is very narrow. You can only come through one at a time. You can't buy a family ticket just because you're a believer. It doesn't mean that your husband or wife go in for free. Every single person has to enter for themselves. Jesus became the way by his total obedience to the Father, by his death and resurrection. And he did all of this so that we don't have to. So how do we get on to this way? In Mark 1, Jesus tells us that we need to repent and believe the gospel. And Romans 10, 9 follows up, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus didn't say, Lift your hand, repeat after me the following words, and you're in. By repent, he meant examine yourself, acknowledge your sins for what they are, confess them and turn away from them. 
Submit to Jesus in every area of your life and believe and be thankful for everything that he has done to save you, recognising that you can do nothing on your own. If Jesus had meant, purely meant that the way to be the means by which we gain access, he would have perhaps repeated that he was the door or the gate. So we need to look again at what he meant when he said, I am the way. In the culture at the time, and still in some Arab-speaking countries, if you're visiting a place and you stop to ask the way, the person you're asking will reply with, I am the way, and they will take you to where you need to be. The guide becomes the way, so to speak. Isaiah 30 reminds us that when you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Now, if Jesus were to just issue a bunch of instructions or commands when we first start onto the path, i.e. become Christians, it would not be long before we become discouraged or lost. We have enough trouble keeping on the path with his daily guidance as it is. Quite simply, leaving us with a set of rules would leave us in the same place as other religions. We would be working our way to heaven. Jesus showed us that this was never going to work when he issued the Ten Sorry, God showed us this was never going to work when he issued the Ten Commandments. People were not going to be able to follow the laws for any sustained period on their own, and we're no different from them. We need divine help to follow Jesus, and that's why he sent his Holy Spirit to be the ever-present voice to guide us through all the twists and turns of our life. This way, this way is talked about, as we read when we were in Philippians 1, God, who began a good work in us, will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, walking the way of Jesus is obeying Jesus and letting ourselves be transform, transformed into his likeness throughout our lives. So what about the rest of his statement, I am the truth and the life? Sadly, we don't have time to unpack these in any depth this morning, but I have got notes in, in our home group notes for you to, to look at these. But briefly, truth in today's world has never been so cheap and undervalued as a commodity. <clears throat> truth is what you want it to be at any point, and it can change. That's false truth. Lies, in other words. What is biblical truth? To start with, it is every word that comes from God. This means that all of scripture is true. In Psalm 119, we read that God's law is truth. Jesus talks about the law during his Sermon on the Mount and goes on to tell his audience that, in fact, he himself is the embodiment of all that is true, for in him there is no sin. Furthermore, at the start of the book of John, we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We understand that this true word is Jesus. Our understanding of truth grows as our, our faith grows. And Jesus spoke a lot about truth. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is correct. We know Jesus. And as we know Jesus, we know he will set us free. Truth leads on to I am the life. After telling his disciples about his impending death, he's now uh, claiming to be the source of all life. In John 10, he declared that he's going to lay down his life for his sheep and take it back up again. He spoke of his authority over life and death as being granted to him by the Father. 
And he gives the promise that because I live, you too will live. He's not talking about living now. He's talking about deliverance from a life of sin, from the life of sin and death to a life of freedom in eternity. All three I am's are inextricably linked. Jesus is the way, the means by which we come to God, the path which we must follow. But we can only follow by the light of the truth, which is Jesus, so that we may have eternal life, living with and in him. Perhaps Acts 17 sums it up, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. I want very briefly to cover one final part of the conversation. Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you haven't really known or understood me, but from now on you know me because you see me. And Philip says, Jesus, we've been with you for three years. We've seen all these incredible things, but we're not satisfied. We want the big one the one that even Moses didn't get, one that was denied to everybody really properly. We want to see God now. We want to see his face. If we see the God, our Father, who is invisible, it'll be so much easier. It's quite hard to be devoted and obedient to a God who is invisible. Just once, Jesus, just once, show us the Father. How many times have we said, just answer this one thing and we won't ask again? Perhaps this is where Jesus is getting a, a little bit irritated. Because he says, well, how long have I been with you? Who do, who do you think I am? Who's standing before you? Don't you know me? How can you say, show us the Father? What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> Probably not a kosher example, but there we go. What do you think I've been doing since I was born? You are talking to the visible manifestation of the invisible God. I am one with God. Because when you look into my eyes, you're looking into the eyes of God. When you touch my hand, you are touching the hand of God. Now Jesus is pushing this point home because they will need to believe in him completely when he's invisible, just as they believe in God, who is also invisible. As I finish this morning, I want to leave you with one question, one that changes lives. Who is Jesus to you? I don't mean who is he when we're safe inside church with like-minded individuals. Who is he when you're talking with others? Who is he on Monday morning at work or Thursday afternoon catch up with friends? Who is Jesus really to you? Is he the only way or one way? Who do you say he is? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've told us in so many ways who you are. Thank you for living and dying for us. Lord, today, we know there are so many beliefs out there and perhaps we have been guilty of hoping that we can come to you just because we are nice and kind and and do good things. Lord, we want to remember that you alone are the only way to the Father. Help us to hear your voice clearly and to follow you. Help us to speak out your truth and share it boldly with others. Amen.